At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 261. Great debates in fitness and in health. Two doctors debate common questions submitted by you. On the other end of the line is the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? I guess we had no choice but to uh, give the people what they want here, huh? <laughs> it's in the contract. No choice. People, people like us arguing, apparently. I get, or, or feigning arguments. I don't know what the... Making up arguments. Yeah. I mean, I guess I do this in my own brain, so it's nice to externalize this rather than have the voices in my head. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you guys like this content, just, you know, let us know because we'll, we're doing this for you. You know, this isn't like cathartic for us to just do podcasts. And if you like it, we'll just keep doing it. Um, so if you haven't listened to the great debates in fitness and in health part one, I kind of laid out why we're doing this. I'll just recapitulate that here. So the thought was we would answer some common questions, but from an opposing points of view, because as experts, you know, in this particular space and the questions that we're trying to answer here, we kind of already know the opposing views. And so when people ask us questions, we'll generally provide an answer without sort of commenting on, and some people might say this other thing. And so sometimes the actual answer is, it's not intentionally partial, but it just ends up being that way because we're just trying to help people out and give them an answer. So in this particular format, we get to, you know, basically play both sides, play devil's advocate, and maybe that leads to better understanding. And if not, it's just entertaining. So the rules of engagement here are we got five minutes per question. The first person who starts, uh, who leads gets two minutes, and then the other person gets a two-minute rebuttal. And then the person who started gets one minute to respond to that, and we'll alternate who goes first. And again, this is a loose program. We don't have like, should we get like a, a, a moderator? You know, like who would be, our, who'd be your dream moderator for one of these things? Jeez, uh, we're really formalizing this now, aren't we? Well, I've just said, if you had to pick. Because I think Samuel L. Jackson would be excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like he would start yelling at people. He would and, start you know, participating for sure. <laughs> which I'm, I'm here for that. Yeah, that would be that. That would be my pick. Would you pick somebody else? Would you pick? Like uh, 
Yeah, I think I think this is one of those questions that I need some time to mull over. Oh my god! Pick my All right. pick my uh, my best moderator. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, I will give you the you, you see the questions before you. You haven't looked uh, at these uh, too long. I will give you the opportunity to go first. Is that it? or you can go or you can defer? Um, I'll pass. You can go first. <laughs> well, R.I.P. Sir. All right. <laughs> so the first question is: Is obesity a disease? And I'm going to argue the affirmative that yes, it is a disease. And so when you think about the definition of obesity, it is the presence of a higher than normal, a higher than healthy level of body fat or adipose tissue. And I think where you, we can just start the conversation is that body fat is this normal physiological variable, just like blood pressure, just like blood cholesterol, blood sugar, things of that nature, right? And so there's a normal range by which body fat can exist in where it is healthy and you need it. And there's a range where it's too low and there's a level where it's too high. And so by classifying obesity as a disease would reduce the stigma associated with having the condition. And so in contrast, people will argue, and I suspect that Austin will argue that it is a moral failing or that is just a physical attribute that is socially unaccepted at this particular time in history, whereas it wasn't always. Um, but I think that that places the sort of blame on individuals who uh, have too much body fat, which doesn't really help them because the blame thing is different than the responsibility. I want to like separate those two things. The blame thing, all it does is reduce people's uh, uh, access to sort of care because it's stigmatized, reduces research uh, funding into um, obesity, and reduces sort of uh, available interventions overall. And so I think those would be the pros of classifying obesity as a disease. And effectively, every national and international organization that cares to comment on whether or not obesity is a disease has come out with statements saying, yeah, in fact, it is. And the, the hopes are, is that uh, more research dollars are contributed to studying obesity and not only like what causes it, but also how to treat it and also how to disseminate information into the public domain. So I will cede the rest of my time if I'm under two minutes and uh, <laughs> good luck. Yeah. So uh, I think that I want to come at this a slightly different way. You already articulated what some of the more common counters to this are in society that people come across. They'll say it's a moral failing or if people could just, you know, try, then they wouldn't be or wouldn't be obese or have obesity, however you want to you want to phrase it. I think that there's multiple really interesting layers to this. And it's a turns out to be a lot more philosophical of a question than I think a lot of people <laughs> might realize. You alluded to this when you said that you know, definitions of disease have varied quite a lot over time. That's definitely true. As our understanding has grown, as, you know, social concepts and things like that have, have changed, you know, what used to be demonic possession, you know, eventually, eventually turned into like, oh, they just have epilepsy or something like that, right? Uh, homosexuality used to be, you know, in uh, categorized as a disease um, in, in old, uh, older renditions of like DSM and things like that. And that's, um, all of that is obviously markedly, markedly different. And obesity maybe historically was not viewed as a disease and now has been more recently classified as one. And that brings up just what the definition of a disease is, which similar to our prior conversations on what is health, the definition of a disease itself is a philosophical discussion that I don't claim to be an expert in. I've done a bit of reading on it over the years, and, it, and it's been a little while. One of my favorite um, authors on this topic, his name is Bjorn Hoffman. I assume he's from somewhere in northern northern Europe, <laughs> would, would be my guess. But he's a pretty prolific author on like disease diagnosis. And, and there's been historically differentiations between the concept of a disease, which, at, you know, one example of a definition is like a physiological malfunction that leads to like a limitation or a reduction in 
you know, uh, quality of life or life expectancy, just as one example, heavily biologically focused, but that's one example. Contrasting that with illness, which just, which focuses more on the subjective experience of the person, like they're suffering from this condition, or the concept of sickness, which is kind of like a, a social role that we have um, when, when somebody is experiencing a sickness and, and, and the demands that that requires. So that's one element of how complicated this question is. The other is that, you know, obesity in this question is being framed as one thing and obesity is not necessarily just one thing. There's multiple different pathways that by which somebody could achieve this final state. So for example, we've talked before about there's, you know, monogenic obesity, which is relatively uncommon. Certain genetic mutations that set people up uh, to develop obesity much earlier at a much more rapid rate. There's more quote unquote common, you could call it polygenic obesity, the more, more typical manifestation that's not attributable to just one gene. You could even argue that there are some people who deliberately, you know, Overconsume to achieve a certain physical uh, state, like a sumo wrestler or something like that, who's who may not necessarily be genetically wired up to develop this condition, but rather does it deliberately as as part of an athletic pursuit. And so I think that when we kind of Venn diagram all these different elements of the question, I almost view the question itself as being just really, really reductionistic. Unless you're just saying, okay, we're going to talk about common obesity. You know that the, the the by far the the most common um, manifestation of it in in society, to which, as you mentioned, there are certain benefits that you that could be had. Although that there may be benefits, for example, from funding, research, treatment, that doesn't necessarily necessitate it being defined as a disease. That's just how we how we tend to think about things. So, if I could zoom way back out, <laughs> I think that there are multiple different. Uh, uh, types of obesity, manifestations of obesity, ways that you can get there. Um, and so obesity, you know, as we're using it here, just kind of describes the physical form, but the experience of it, um, the, the degree to which somebody suffers or doesn't suffer is, I think, a more interesting way to look at the question. And it's possible for somebody to have a certain body state, body habitus, um, so to speak, and to not really suffer from it. And so if somebody is not experiencing suffering from this or may not ultimately experience suffering long-term due to this, um, then that might be a situation where you could uh, question whether they're actually experiencing a disease because from their perspective, it doesn't really matter to them, you know? Yeah. Well, while I acknowledge the heterogeneity in not only definitions of disease, but also the experience, the lived experience of carrying a higher than healthy level of body fat, I think that most people, including myself, would define disease as having some untoward or unwanted risk of negative sequelae down the line, whether it's heart disease, type 2 diabetes, osteoarthritis, various forms of cancer, et cetera. And in working with that framework, I think you can make a very strong argument that the presence of excess body fat, no matter how you got there, is in fact, it increases the risk of all of those things and more thereby firmly establishing it in disease. Yeah, I mean, it, when, when we are applying these terms within a certain like philosophical framework, then yes, that is the only conclusion that you could come to. And I'm sure that there's some, you know, philosophy types who are listening to this being like, these idiots are like, this is like amateur levels, <laughs> level conversation in this realm. But, but that really is, it's like, you know, how are you defining obesity? How are you defining disease? And then that is what generates the, you know, logical conclusions of that uh, original question and claim. Yeah, there's there's this whole thing, line of thinking that there's like a, a transient state between effectively like normal body fat levels to elevated body fat levels called like medically healthy obesity, where an individual has no signs and symptoms of excess body fat other than the presence of excess body fat. And we think that that's a transient state in that the presence of the excess body fat itself effectively is going to lead to negative outcomes later on. 
Now, the person may not be concerned with that, you know, just living their life and, and a very fulfilling one. But again, I think the risks long term, you can't really ignore those and say, hey, even if you're fulfilled and happy and, and this, that, and the other, that still doesn't negate those risks. You may, you know, it's a risk benefit analysis as far as what you want to do about it. Um, but I think I would still classify it as a disease. Here's the last, uh, we're turning this one into a little bit longer, but the last interesting consideration is how many conditions there are, obesity here included, but many others as well, which they're kind of uh, uh, viewing them as a disease is heavily dependent on the uh, environmental context that the person is in. And so one additional counter here could be like, well, if you just take somebody with common obesity, put them in a different environment, their obesity likely goes away. If you put them in an environment that does not have ready calorie abundance, it, it melts away, it's gone. So is that, do they have said like physiologic, biological dysfunction when it is so dependent on the surrounding environment to actually manifest as a problem? And there are many other conditions. There are certain like psychological or psychiatric conditions which are viewed as like, you might be more well adapted in a certain different type of environment if society was set up to <laughs> incentivize, reward people who thought, behaved, functioned differently than maybe that maybe all the rest of us <laughs> um, might be the ones who are viewed as, as uh, being atypical or having a certain condition or disease. So the, the environmental context consideration also is, is an interesting additional layer to this uh this very deep question <laughs> oh man all right we're gonna have to do a philosophy podcast yeah all right <laughs> question number two dr baraki you will lead on this one should beginners vary the exercises that they do yeah i think i'm gonna take the pro uh, uh position on this one um so there are multiple different considerations when we are initiating a beginner uh to to training we have to think about all the different traits that we are trying to generate. So from this question, we're going to view it from general strength and conditioning. We want to develop uh, uh, strength, the ability to produce force as it is measured in a, in a particular context. We want to develop cardiorespiratory endurance. And this is admittedly a very long-term process. And I think that when we view it that way, um, there are additional considerations. We want to allow the individual to be as consistent and as adherent to our training program as possible. And so I think that for um, many people, there are a few considerations that are relevant here. One is psychological enjoyment. Um, and psychological enjoyment, I won't say that this is generalized for every single person, but training monotony um, tends to be something that can be problematic for a decent number of people. Um, another consideration is their actual athletic development can be impacted by variation in movements. We've discussed before a bit of the evidence around um, exercise variation and its impact on motor learning. So when people just do one thing and one thing alone over and over and over again, um, the rate and quality of their, their motor learning adaptations tend to not be as, as efficient and uh, as, um, as consistent as they are when they do have some uh, variation around the tasks because we just kind of, our, our neuromuscular system get to explore different movement solutions to a particular task and we can improve it at greater rates. And then the last thing has to do with, you know, this broad concept that we talk about a lot known as, as load management. Um, as that relates to both rates of adaptation and also risk of aches and pains and overuse type injuries, as well as acute injuries and things like that. And so I think that by distributing loads uh, in a more varied fashion, not just you know uh, um, heavier or lighter loads from session to session, but also distributing that stress across the body in different ways using different movements, um, that we can likely both develop people's uh, capacity to tolerate loading uh, more effectively and uh, reduce the risk uh, potentially of some of those sites of overuse syndromes from developing. So if I had to summarize, I would say that there are considerations for movement variation from the standpoint of 
athletic development, motor learning, et cetera, uh, from injury risk mitigation, um, and then also physical development in, in, in a broader array of physical capacities. And then finally, uh, potentially from more on a more individual level, um, enjoyment um, uh, for, from an adherence standpoint, rather than um, uh, dealing with issues related to training monotony. Well, I, I see my uh, colleague's point, and I cannot argue it against the potential physical and performance benefits, motor learning, uh, risk, uh, injury risk reduction. I cannot argue any against any of those points. However, I think if I had to argue in favor of less variation for beginners, it would have to be from either an adherence or uptake standpoint. Adherence being how uh, likely it is that somebody receiving the information to do a particular exercise program or series of exercises actually does it, uh, slash even uptake at the healthcare professional level. So for example, we were at a conference and presenting on how to you know, counsel folks on resistance training they might, the healthcare professionals might receive the information a little bit more readily if it was only a handful of exercises rather than, you know, a compendium of exercises extending, you know, for multiple slides, for example. That being said, I am not aware of any data supporting <laughs> a reduced variation in either adherence uh, in the general public or amongst healthcare professionals receiving information on how to counsel folks. In fact, the only data that I'm aware of this is not controlled data. It's just sort of self-reported data that's been collated uh, with people doing the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, and the overhead press. And effectively, uh, that particular group, despite the low variation in exercises, was unable to adhere to the program very readily. Only 20% of the sample size actually did that particular program consisting of only four exercises. Everybody else started including other exercises anyway, suggesting that perhaps people actually want the variation. So if I had to make an argument or a sort of practical recommendation in favor of reduced variation, it would be that if you can hook people onto resistance training with a relatively low amount of exercise variation at first, maybe the first week, two weeks, three weeks, even four weeks, something like that, and then expand that after you've hooked them, I see no problem with that. I think when you start getting into longer term uh, periods of training with reduced exercise variation, I would have a problem with that. And so if you look at our beginner template, beginner prescription, for example, there's a relatively low amount of exercise variation to start with, sort of like the hook, and then it expands after about week four, for example. Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable take. And that's, you know, in part what I was alluding to there with respect to the training monotony or psychological enjoyment aspect being on a much more individual level. And so this is something that I would probably with a beginner uh, trainee assess at the outset, get a sense of whether they have any exercise history. And if, t if so, you know, what did that typically look like? Were they the type who would bounce around between all sorts of different tasks? Uh, we were, before we started recording, we were talking about Lorraine, my, my wife, who just did a giant, you know, 30 kilometer ruck, you know, endurance march or something like that. And she was training for that for a while and motivated into it. And now as soon as it's over, she's like, oh, I can't wait to like go and, you know, lift some weights or something. And she's bounced between that and weightlifting and CrossFit and, you know, running and swimming and all sorts of things. Whereas, you know, some of the rest of us might be much more consistent with a particular exercise modality and, and prefer that. So I view that as a valid consideration, but much more on an individual level. Um, whereas the other considerations relating to things like motor learning and and, and uh, injury risk mitigation and, and developing a broader array of physical capacities are much more generalizable across people and not so not as limited to an individual preference type thing. Yep, I agree. All right, question number three: Do people have to bench at all angles to hit quote all parts of the chest for best hypertrophy? 
I'm just going to ignore all of the different operant terms that we'd have to define here because I think <laughs> people know what we're getting at. Like, do you have to bench at multiple different angles or press at multiple different angles to optimize quote, chest hypertrophy? And so we'll just, again, ignore having to define all these things. Uh, I will argue in the negative uh, and say that people do not have to bench at all angles in order to achieve optimal chest hypertrophy. And so the line of thinking behind this question is that, oh, you got to do incline bench, flat bench press, decline bench, all these sorts of different things in order to grow all the different heads of the chest. And if you look at anatomy texts, they'll vary between, there are three different heads of the pectoralis major, for example, sternoclavicular, uh, for example, or sorry, there's a, a clavicular head, a sternocostal head, an abdominal head. And then there's even some anatomy texts that say there are seven different heads anyway, or seven different portions of the pec major. The point is this, when you actually look at the research combine, uh, comparing different angles of pressing, whether it be incline, whether it be flat, whether it be decline, the majority of that data is on electromyographic studies, electrical studies, effectively looking at the amount of muscular excitation um, that's uh, happening during the movement. And yes, there are differences in general as the incline becomes greater, as it approaches vertical, you get more anterior deltoid more upper chest, the stern, uh, clavicular head of the pectoralis major has more electrical activity going on. And as the incline of the bench goes closer to horizontal or even decline, you get uh, more EMG activity, more electrical activity, more muscular excitation. And the sternocostal and abdominal head of the pectoralis major, less anterior delt. And in all cases, the triceps brachii are in, involved. That's all well and good. However, you need to connect that evidence of EMG differences between different types of pressing to actual outcomes. So like thickness in different levels of the chest, this sort of regional hypertrophy, as it were. And the data on that is not good. What I mean by that is saying the EMG differences in general do not predict regional hypertrophy differences. And so what I think you see in practice, people saying, oh, I switched to incline bench or incline dumbbell bench, or I switched the angle of the incline, or I started doing decline bench and I had better results, better growth for my chest. What you're seeing is that their individual anthropometry, their individual, you know, origin and insertions of their muscles uh, basically responded better to a particular exercise variation than another. And I think that's highly individualized. I don't think that, uh, if, you know, making a stock recommendation that you have to train at all these different angles is likely to uh, effectively suit everyone's needs. However, I do think that some variation in the training program is, is beneficial. And so I think that a good strength conditioning program would in fact have multiple different angles of pressing, but I don't know that you're going to get differences in regional hypertrophy by changing the angle in and of itself. I just don't think the evidence strongly supports that just yet. I do think the evidence suggests that people will respond differently to different exercises, but that's based on individual factors, I think that are unrelated to EMG differences reported in the data. Uh, yeah, so I am inclined to agree that the evidence on regional hypertrophy is not awesome at the moment. The other caveat to this is that I'm not an expert in the regional hypertrophy data because um, I, I don't really care about it that much. But <laughs> that which I am aware of <laughs> uh, to date has not been super, super compelling. The position that I'm being forced to take here in favor of, the <laughs> of training in this way, I think is going to come more so from the standpoint of if I were interested in uh, generating the greatest hypertrophy in a particular area, how would I best hedge my bets towards that outcome? And I think that if, uh, you know, if your position would be that you don't need to do that and you would just 
flat bench and exclusively flat bench for the entirety of your program and expect to get the best hypertrophy results. That's a position which I have, uh, you know, constructed out of a lot of straw here, and <laughs> I, will, I will then refute. Um, as I would hedge my bets in such a, a training setup or w towards that goal by def by introducing additional variation that would involve uh, different exercises um, that uh, that do involve the musculature from different angles, potentially even different ranges of motion, using different forms of loading, things like that. And so I would not necessarily be. I don't know how confidently any individual trainee can like measure uh, aspects of, of regional hypertrophy. That seems to be a bit uh, a bit uh, insane to me. But if I were interested in generating the best hypertrophy in a given area, I would definitely aim to stimulate it in a variety of ways rather than deliberately restricting that to say just one way or one angle or one plane of motion. Um, not only for any potential, basically the, the idea here is that there's a potential upside um, in terms of if regional hypertrophy is a thing without any tangible downside, if regional hypertrophy is not a thing and I'm just getting the same hypertrophy either way on a volume matched basis, then I'll take that potential upside with no real downside. Um, so I think that's the way that I would come at this uh, practically and because I'm being forced to as well. <laughs> yeah. My, my rebuttal is that I agree completely with <laughs> your counter argument. I think I win. <laughs> yeah. Well, because as you say, there is no downside here, right? Uh, effectively, the sort of uh, potential risk would be that you select exercise variations that you at present uh, unknowingly don't respond well to compared to something else that you presumably already know that you respond well to. But like general principles of hypertrophy training are that you'd want to work the muscle or muscle group through multiple different ranges of motion, most of them probably lengthened in multiple different angles using multiple different exercises across a variety of different rep ranges. And you would pick variations, uh, some, uh, you'd pick variations that allow you to do a lot of training volume with without becoming over fatigued. I mean, if you have to make a straw man argument, it's like, yeah, you just do flat bench press. And you're saying that would give you the most hypertrophy. <laughs> and the answer is no, but I just don't know that people need to do, you know, a 70 degree high inclined bench press compared to a 15 degree inclined bench press in order to get, you know, one of the seven heads that some anatomy text has talked about historically. So I just think that people, when they say, oh, you got to do this for upper chest, this for lower chest, this for inner chest, I think that's not really well supported. Although I think in practice, the recommendation is the same. Yeah, maybe we'll do some different exercises too. Okay. Question number four, Austin, you're first on this one. Are energy drinks bad for health? Uh, I'm regretting doing all of these on the fly now again. Um, so I think that as with, as with any... Uh, any exposure, uh, the dosage is going to be the thing that makes the biggest difference here. And so I'm going to say, sorry, you, you are you a, picking a side interjection? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with no here. <laughs> and, and part of the reason is that I think the majority of people consuming these beverages are not consuming them in dosages that lead to outright toxic effects. There's, there certainly are some that can be consumed in that fashion. This is just like a current events anecdote. I don't know if you've heard about this like Panera lemonade situation. <laughs> apparently Panera has some kind of a lemonade product. You can Google it right now. And like multiple people have like apparently died on their way home from Panera after chugging like several of these because um, it contains a whole bunch of caffeine. <laughs> what in the world? Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. There was a, there was a, an entertaining tweet that I saw from another physician who said, I'm, I'm updating my code status to the NRDNI except I'm okay for two rounds of Panera lemonade. <laughs> and I just cracked up. When I saw that. Um, so I think that in general, people are not consuming these in dosages uh, at which they're going to be exposed to outright toxic effects. 
Um, and then with that said, the, the typical ingredients of these um, tend to contain a fair amount of caffeine, which is one is probably the most consumed, you know, psychostimulant in the world. Um, and again, the dosages of that on average are, are reasonable. And then most of the other ingredients that these beverages contain are either uh, benign or not doing much of anything at all. Like they might contain some B vitamins or something like that, which some people might benefit from. <laughs> some people might just pee out and are otherwise relatively benign. Um, so I think that, you know, overall evidence on this, when consumed at not insane dosages of intake, I think that these are ultimately going to be benign, assuming that we're talking about, uh, actually, I should add a caveat in terms of the calorie content. So I would prefer that these be non-calorie containing, so not sugar-sweetened energy uh, energy drinks. So if it's one of the zero-calorie ones, then I'm good with that. If uh, somebody's consuming very high doses, um, like unusually high doses or frequencies that could um, lead to potential toxicities or substantially impact sleep quality duration, for example, that would be a negative consideration. Or if they're sugar sweetened, those would be in situations where I would be more concerned about uh, adverse health effects. I think I will have to respond then in the affirmative that energy drinks are bad for health. You forced me to take this position. And so I'll do so by putting my public health cat hat on. Um, and I think what you have to focus on here are the behaviors and the other dietary pattern components uh, that usually folks who consume energy drinks likely participate in. And so to your point, there are many energy drinks out there that are sugar sweetened, for example, and people who consume energy drinks in general have a diet that consists, uh, that has a lot of ultra processed foods in them, for example, and uh, the sort of dose uh, of the energy drinks in, while in isolation is not particularly harmful people tend to drink uh, quite a few of these things. And so I think that if you had to make a public health recommendation uh, for or against energy drinks, you would probably say people should likely avoid energy drinks as long as that also at the same time modified their total dietary pattern to reduce intake of other sugar-sweetened beverages if it's a leaded version of these things <laughs> and or re reduce their sort of intake of ultra processed foods that likely coincide with consumption of energy drinks. Also the potential uh, effect on sleep because people will consume these at all hours of the day. And then as finally the contamination risk, not only from Panera's death lemonade, but also <laughs> just when you, when you think about the potential for risk of contamination, a big thing here is scale, right? So I'm not really worried about PepsiCo or Coca-Cola having a, you know, contamination risk in Diet Coke, for example, or Diet Pepsi, uh, just because the scale at which they produce these things, it's just, it seems less likely than a smaller company. Like, you remember Nelly's Pimp Juice, for example? No, I was going to bring up Four Loco, but uh, yeah. that's another one. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. There's just a number of like smaller, you know, beverage yeah. manufacturers. And I think the risk is a little bit higher for contamination there, which would be a concern. But I do ultimately agree that in the inappropriate dose, all other things being equal, energy drinks in general are likely not harmful. Um, but I think the behaviors associated with energy drink intake may sort of tip the scale in favor of risk for, for many folks. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that general assessment if the, if the outside behaviors are uh, not favorable. How often would you say that you consume an energy drink? Ooh, uh, every time I play golf, I have a sugar-free Red Bull at the turn. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, that sounds I, like relatively frequently then. <laughs> yeah, probably. I probably have three or four a week. And that's, you know, uh, if on a heavy golf week or otherwise once or twice. But uh, I mean, it's the same thing. Like how often do you have a Diet Coke, right? So I'm just thinking about the caffeine. The vitamin complex stuff in there is almost entirely worthless. And, you know, people are going to geek out about taurine. Oh, now the taurine. I'm like, dude, do you, what is taurine? Like, do you, you know? 
it's like if you don't know what it is, like I don't know, you should be scared about it. I'm I I'm taken aback to this. It was a Facebook comment from like I don't know six years ago. This woman was like, "Avoid dihydrogen monoxide," and I was like, "Yeah, that's that's water though. That's literally H two O." And she goes, "Wait, what?" I go, "Yeah, if you write things in chemical terms, sometimes it can scare you." Uh, okay, anyway, yeah, I have them very infrequently. I just drink espresso and other forms of coffee. But do, do you have a favorite energy drink? Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, typically it's when we travel for seminars and we're all going to train together and I'm anticipating having a good session, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. I'll have either the white or the orange, like, uh, Monster. zero calorie that's monsters. Yep. Yeah. That's it. Yep. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> clearly the elite choice because we have the same, the same preferences here. Yeah. Uh, if you're at all, you know, questioning, well, what about non-nutritive sweeteners? What about artificial sweeteners? Or what about caffeine in general? We have podcasts upon podcasts on both of those topics. You can refer to those if you really want to dive deep into the research there. Okay, next question. Can you be too jacked without drugs? Uh, I guess I will start off this one. And, and I guess we have to define this by saying too jacked for health purposes, I suppose. Uh, my answer to that is yes, you could be carrying too much muscle mass without the use of uh, performance enhancing drugs, anabolic steroids. Um, that's entirely possible because you could concomitantly or at the same time gain too much fat mass. And so if somebody's BMI is greater than about 30 and or if their waist circumference is in excess of the risk cutoff points, which is like 37 inches uh, for, for men, um, 31 and a half inches, I believe, for women. Yeah, you could be you have a ton of muscle mass, but also be carrying a lot of fat mass. I think when people ask this question, though, they're like, well, what if you don't have a lot of fat mass? For example, you just have too much muscle mass and you're in excess of these thresholds and you didn't use drugs. And I'm like, well, that person is such a unicorn that effectively we can remove it from the conversation. Is it possible? Sure. But that is such a statistical outlier. Again, just walk out into public, any major me metropolitan area, and just, just count how many people are too jacked that you see. Is, you know, you're going to be at zero by the end of the day and then you can just you know, throw that out of, out the window. It's just not, uh, an important factor. I still still think there are people though in the NFL or in other professional sports or, or people that are, uh, again, genetically blessed that are carrying a lot of muscle mass, not a lot of fat mass, never use PEDs. And then that particular unicorn, I think it's highly unlikely that they are at risk of untoward health outcomes from carrying too much muscle mass. But because this, these people in general, from a statistical standpoint, like don't exist, I uh, am not really thinking about them too much when I answer this question well since i'm forced to say no on this then that outlier is my only hope <laughs> to get to get to this. so when i read this question obviously i had a similar response of yes you can absolutely be too jacked without drugs if you gain a whole bunch of fat mass but given that the person who asked this question is likely not envisioning somebody who has a you know 55 inch waist circumference uh, but rather is probably envisioning somebody who is both jacked and also very very lean then i do think that in that context, if we're restricting somebody to be very lean, to not using any drugs, I think it is extremely, extremely unlikely for them to um, develop negative health consequences just from the development of muscle mass uh, when they when they've achieved it without the use of any you know uh, performance enhan enhancing drugs or anything like that. So you uh, you set me up by talking about this outlier, which yes, uh, uncommon, but they exist, and that is. Uh, they're, they're the key to my, to my answer here. <laughs> okay. I see the rest of my time because I think you agreed with me. All right. Next question. Oh, this should be a fun one. Austin, you get to start on this one. Is 531 a good program? 
I, I really want to set you up to argue against yourself, but I mean, I think it's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so I'm going to say, sure. Um, my position on this in terms of uh, a, a training program geared towards strength development, uh, it has a reasonable, from what I recall about the program, it has a reasonable amount of uh, movements that you can train. It has variation in the rep ranges. It has submaximal training. It has, um, depending on, again, one of the infinite permutations that you use, it can let you push a little bit harder, a little closer to failure, so you can get some strength stimulus, staying further from failure, some hypertrophy stimulus, getting a little closer to failure. Um, some uh, It has some like wave loading, if I recall, over subsequent weeks. And so there's like some, albeit not truly auto-regulated, but some load management from that perspective as well. And so I think, you know, I am just so ingrained to think of training as like a very long-term process. And so my thoughts about any one, you know, probable short-term training intervention, like running a program for eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, something like that, is ultimately a drop in the bucket. And so I, I often tend to think about these things in terms of like, if I did this or that now, am I likely to end up in a different place a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? And so let's say, you know, even though it's traditionally thought of as a more intermediate quote unquote program, whatever that means, even if somebody wanted to do it as a beginner, a beginner program, and they, and they did it then, if they ran that program, do I think that, and they remain consistent and moved on to other training styles and stuff like that, do I think they'd be in a fundamentally different place five years later, 10 years later? Probably not. Um, and so that's kind of the perspective where I'm like a little bit more agnostic about the details of this. If you're restricting it to just training outcomes in a very short-term training intervention, like what is going to get me better results in eight weeks, this program or a potential alternative that could be set up in a way that is more consistent with our preferred programming, you know, uh, uh, kind of style, um, then you probably have a bit more of an argument. But I think that in terms of like a reasonable initial training intervention for the average person who is going to start, you know, doing barbell training, I think it checks a reasonable enough amount of boxes. And I'm not concerned enough about the potential downsides, um, either in the short term or in the long term, really. I uh, acknowledge my colleague's point that it is a reasonable starting point. However, I would add on to that by saying I do not think that any there's anything unique to the 531 setup that makes it any better of a choice than any other resistance training program. It's just yet another type of resistance training that could help somebody meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines for exercise. And so, you know, when I wrote that article, uh, was it like into the great wide open, effectively like, what do you do after you're done with your beginner program? And I, I talked about Texas Method and 531. The article's still out there on the internet. You guys can take a look at it if you want. I got a lot of heat for like, well, you picked this particular variation of 531 and it's not this other one. And I'm like, well, okay, if we try, had to distill down 531 into what one like fundamental thing, one unique thing, one proprietary thing, I, you, you could say that it is the sort of wave loading doing one week of fives at certain percentages, one week of threes, a particular percentage, one week of ones, a particular percentage, or it was the five through one week and then a deload, right? And it's like, I see no reason to attach yourself to that particular type of template to set up your program to further modify it or individualize it based on your current needs and preferences, resources, and so on. And so from that standpoint, I think it's pretty clear to see, no, it's not a good program. There's nothing uniquely beneficial or particularly useful of that setup. And in fact, I think there are multiple things wrong, wrong with that. Going from sets of five to sets of three to sets of one, for example, that is not how you develop strength in general. 
effectively what you've done is just move the goalposts every week. You did fives for one week and then you're able to load heavier weight to do less reps the next week. It's like, I don't know if you got any stronger. You just sort of move the goalposts. Same thing if you went from threes to ones. Like I don't, you're lifting more weight, but it's less reps. So I don't know that you're any stronger. And I don't know that having that amount of frequency of change is, is super useful for actually developing strength. Further, having a deload week every fourth week, I mean, that represents a long period of not actually training to get better throughout the year. And so I think that's fundamentally wrong. And that, and, and then in general, when you look at the sort of uh, idea of the percentages used, whatever, on these rep schemes, it's not that they're terrible. It's just like, well, why, you know, attach yourself to those percentages doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think you can make a strong argument for using auto-regulation in, in there versus just a particular percentage. Um, and so if, when it comes down to it, if you're like, is 531 a good program, meaning that is it better than any other particular program that you're going to similarly allow yourself to modify to the, to the nth degree? I think the answer is no. And then the, if, you, if you must maintain some semblance of the proprietary special sauce that makes 531 531, I think that you're in general in a worse place than if you started with something else or a clean slate entirely. Um, my counter to the concern about not being able to tell whether you're stronger is that uh, when you come back for your next block, you might have some evidence of that when you go back to doing fives, and perhaps you might perform better, and that would give you some evidence in relatively short order. I think that if I had to pick my least favorite thing about it, it is one of the things that you mentioned, that there's a deload every fourth week. And I do not think that effectively anybody needs a deload every fourth week. And if you do, I have other concerns about the way you're going about your training, because that does represent a substantial amount of... To the extent you're going to worry about quote unquote wasted time uh, in a training program, that would be it. I think it's it's probably not necessary. So that's my the extent of my other comments. It's like I build programs, you know, on a regular basis, right? And I have to think about like why am I attaching myself to a particular style, or whatever, right? And in general, that's led me to this final or current my current position, which is like I don't know that I have a firm position on like what should be the sort of building blocks of a training program with respect to exercise order, exercise frequency, volume or whatever outside of a handful of things. Like you want to train all the major muscle groups of the body. You probably want to have some mix of compound and isolation movements um, for general strength conditioning. You want to have a wide variety of rep ranges. You want to use auto-regulation. You want to have some conditioning elements in there. And it's like, okay, well, those are all very general sort of things. And so what what are this what's the specific stuff and you're like oh there actually is none because it varies so much and there's such a wide range of things that will work and so sure some people have done five through one and have gotten great results but i don't know that that means that the again proprietary stuff is like super useful apologies to anybody i've offended by ripping off five through one if you did five through one and ended up at our podcast hey we're happy to have you i just think like there are better options out there this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. 
Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, next question. Do men and women respond differently to lifting weights? Okay, so I am responding first here. I will pick the negative in general, so I'll see what Austin comes up with on this. As I think respond differently, that just gives you so many different ways to take this. I think most people are probably thinking about hypertrophy, strength, uh, things of that nature. And so just from that aspect, in general, men and women will have the same relative amount of improvement in strength and muscle size to a given program. Relative just meaning like a percentage increase based on where you started. When you look at other sort of factors uh, like power, um, and, and it's the same story, same relative improvement. The biggest difference you're going to see here is really like regional strength, for example. So like the percentage increase in upper body strength in women is about the same as men, but it just is, uh, it's so much less than men in general, just due to the like regional distribution of muscle mass, uh, for example. So um, that there's a caveat there. I think if I had to argue against myself here, right, if I had to take your position, it would have to do with some sort of social dynamics, uh, for example. There, there's probably some other uh, physiological things that I'm not really wanting to get into right now. So we'll see if you go there. But I think I would have to kind of hedge my bets that there's a difference in like social sort of responses here. So we'll see what you come up with. Yeah, I think you alluded to the first thing that came to mind in terms of the regional distribution. I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before in terms of differences in mainly in upper body strength performance. A lot of this, though, is centered around different. There's, there, there are differences in, in, in performance that are not necessarily the same thing as saying that somebody responds differently. And so we've frequently pointed out that in terms of relative improvement compared to where you started, the percentage improvement that you get out of training 
does seem to be very, very similar. Um, you know, pretty much, uh, uh, pretty much across the board for people of, uh, uh, you know, if you have a broad enough sample of people who are at similar, you know, baseline levels of, of fitness or those who are who are untrained. So, I agree that it's pretty difficult to take a confident biological stance here. That there's substantial differences in relative improvement. There are definitely differences in absolute outcomes on average. There are differences in performance um, in in certain tasks including upper body performance, certain um, endurance-related uh, um, activities, which we've talked about before, sometimes even skew a little even more favorably towards, towards women. Um, so there's a lot of interesting considerations there. The, the social dynamics is one that uh, you're probably a, little, a, a bit more well-read on than I am. And, and I don't know that I would lump that in with like responding differently to lifting weights. A lot of that has to do more with participation. Although when you're, you know, part, when you're participating and your training environment around you um, can, can definitely, we have both experienced that when we've trained together or um, with, with other folks that that training environment leads to differences in performance and likely to differences in adaptations. And so I, I think that to the extent that, you know, historically the weight room may not have been the most welcoming place uh, for, <laughs> for women to come and participate, that may have impacted their, uh, their training, their performance, their adaptations from it. Although that seems to be overall uh, improving these days com compared to where it's been in the past. So definitely a tough one to, to argue uh, against outside of some of those specific considerations relating to regional distribution of uh, um, adaptations, upper body, lower body, things like that. And then some of these social things that I suspect you might have some more comments on too. Yeah. Uh, well, the only thing I would say is that, you know, some, some person's listening to this right now and they're like, well, I read this study where women gained, you know, less strength or their performance went up less, you know, there was a smaller relative improvement. What, what do you say? And it's like, Okay, if the study is small enough to not contain a representative sample uh, of the population, then yeah, you're going to get all sorts of weird results. So really, in this case, I think uh, meta-analyses, systematic reviews and stuff uh, tend to be the most sort of illustrative of what's actually going on. And then from a social standpoint, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you look at women in strength sports across, you know, history, and even in present time, they, they're outnumbered by men. And the environment that uh, they have to not only like show up and participate in, but like the opportunities they get to actually participate in strength sports uh, or even in just recreational uh, exercise, it's, it's all much, much different than if you're, if you're a man. And so it's not just uh, like getting your, their foot in the door, for example, but also staying in the gym, uh, for example. And so there's some complicated stuff there. And I don't, I don't think we have enough time to discuss all of that. And plus, I just don't want the heat right now i just feel like somebody's somebody's gonna say something somebody's gonna trigger me i just want to argue on the internet so we'll save that for another podcast but yeah there's uh there's some differences but i don't think they're in general uh like biologically or physiologically based in, in, in how folks respond to training all right next question should people train to failure austin you lead on this one uh yeah i'm gonna say no here um and this is something i've been thinking about quite a bit i think recently, because it's something that um, I would say both of us have had a pretty significant change of opinion on over the years coming, you know, starting out from from where we where we came from, um, the, the folks that we formerly affiliated with and their approach to training um, kind of defined strength performance as being able to achieve a certain task at that failure point. And that is ne is, is necessary for the development of strength. Um, and the display of strength. And I think that probably one of the most challenging things, if any of those folks from that scene were to honestly engage with the data, it would be actually pretty interesting to see <laughs> um, their thoughts, for example, on the velocity loss data. Um, when we've had multiple 
uh, trials uh, in recent years that take two groups and they have them um, they have them lift uh, lift weights and they terminate their sets at different degrees of velocity loss. So a group that might stop their set at 20% velocity loss, the bar slows down by that amount from first rep to the rep when they stop versus 40% velocity loss, meaning they take it a little further, a little closer to failure. They grind a little bit harder and they look at strength outcomes. And the people who have terminate their sets with lower velocity loss tend to, um, tend to uh, achieve better strength outcomes. And this is also observed in how power athletes out in the world actually train for sport. None of them <laughs> typically are in the gym just like grinding all out sets, which if that were in fact the best way to develop strength and power, you would think that people might have figured some of these things out by now. Um, of course, we're very familiar with uh, some of the counter arguments that they have to that stuff. But now we actually have some of this velocity loss data that I find to be pretty compelling and consistent with our own experience in terms of training and staying a bit further from failure and how that's related to strength development. The other uh, side of this is not strength necessarily, but hypertrophy, to which I could see a counter that you may achieve better outcomes training uh, closer to uh, or outright to outright failure. I still think that um, there are some potential downsides to training to failure, um, even in that hypertrophy situation, that if you were to stop shy of absolute failure, you're not sacrificing that much. Um, in terms of outcomes, while you may be achieving close enough of benefits, particularly, as I mentioned in one of the previous questions, over a long enough time period. Um, and so if somebody is training to their bicep curls to absolute failure um, versus to an RPE eight or nine over the course of a decade, I don't know how confident I would be that you're going to see dramatically divergent outcomes over that period of time from a hypertrophy standpoint. And then if people are training to failure, set three sets of five at RPE 10 or something like that over however long you're able to tolerate that without breaking um, compared with uh, uh, training in a more submaximal fashion for strength. I'm more confident that those staying further away from failure, maintaining higher bar velocity are likely to get, achieve better strength and power outcomes um, from that standpoint. So I think that that's going to be how I summarize my answer. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with most of my colleagues points uh, that in general training uh, close to failure, but not quite all the way to failure is probably the best way to go about achieving improvements in strength and hypertrophy with the potential caveat that training all the way to failure for isolation uh, movements with respect to hypertrophy, there does seem to be a little signal there within the data uh, for newer lifters. But I don't think that there's a big difference between RP8 and RP10, for example. So two reps left in reserve versus zero reps left in reserve. And, and rather, I think the more interesting thing to talk about here is like, well, what do we mean by training to failure versus not training to failure? And so despite Austin's, um, you know, discussion about the, yeah, we want to keep the bar velocity high, you want to leave a lot of reps in reserve, that sort of take, he's still real, talking about sets that are RP five or six or something like that. So, you know, you're, you're not 10 reps away from failure, you're five reps away from failure, four reps away from failure. And so I think a better sort of I don't know, maybe recommendation would be like, hey, in general, most of your sets for strength and hypertrophy should be done somewhere close to failure within five or four reps of failure. And if you want to go all the way to failure, like absolute, you know, no shit failure, that should probably be an isolation exercise for, you know, uh, uh, done uh, with the stakes are low. Effectively, it doesn't really matter if you fail a rep from a safety standpoint. And the amount of muscle mass that's being worked is also relatively low. So the fatigue cost from going all the way to failure, because we know the fatigue costs are much, much higher when you go to failure compared to if you stay a little bit further away from failure, the, the overall stakes are pretty low. Um, so I think the 
the more important discussion is what about staying 10 reps shy of failure versus going to RP eight or nine? And in that case, I think what people think is like, this is like an all or none sort of situation. It's like a light switch. It's like, no, you're either building muscle or you're not. You're either building strength or you're not. And it's like, no, this is shades of gray because there's evidence for increased muscle size, increased muscle strength with people training way far away from failure, you know, very, very lightweights. Is it as much as if you train closer to failure? No, but it's still something. And so it's like, I think when people are in this sort of all or nothing sort of situation, they think, well, if I can't go train close to failure, if I can't go train heavy, if I can't go train hard, what's the point? The point is there are still benefits to be had and stacking those wins over time for decades on end. Well, that's how you end up as one of the older people at your gym where people are like, dude, what have you been doing for years? That's crazy. Aspirational goals. That's how you get there. Not by every session being, you know, got to go to war. You got to whatever. It's just, it can't always be like that. And so uh, I agree with, the majority, well, not the majority, but all of what you said, but I think it's important to have the distinction between uh, what are we talking about with submaximal, you know, we're talking about four or five reps shy of failure, something like that at like a lower bound compared to 10 or 15 reps shy of failure. Last thing I'll say is that there may be some utility in training to failure when people need to or want to get a more uh, accurate uh, grasp on what RPE or reps in reserve are. Effectively, this is a person who's, who calls every set uh, that they do RP10, but the bar speed didn't slow down at all. And so in that particular situation, if, again, the stakes are low, the, the risks are relatively low, but a potential benefit of figuring out, like, what does RPE10 actually feel like, you might just say, hey, just go to failure. Send it. You know, I probably wouldn't do that on a squat. I probably wouldn't do that on a deadlift. I probably wouldn't do it on a bench press, but other exercises, you know, if it's a dumbbell uh, sort of exercise, if it's machine type exercise, if it's an isolation exercise, and again, the stakes are low, I could see a benefit there. And I know I'm going over my time, but the last little bit of data here is that sometimes when people self-select loads, they think it's like a, a 15 rep max, for example, I believe the study was, and uh, then they actually do that weight all the way to failure. Turns out that was actually like 50% of one rep max, and they did like 25 reps or close to 30 reps. And it's like, Okay. So again, if your RPE sort of radar is way off, there could be some utility in doing this like RPE audit where you just take the set to failure. So I can see some benefit for going to failure. Otherwise, I think training cycles where someone goes all the way to failure should be relatively limited in length and or the amount of exercises that training to failure is applied to should be relatively few. Yeah. I think part of this is like, why are you training? What's the outcome of interest? If the outcome of interest is to be able to achieve the highest possible powerlifting total on a competitive platform of one rep maxes, then yeah, you're going to have to have some experience with uh, an all-out max, being at failure, being able to grind, things like that. That's fine. That still does not mean that it should be a very regular feature of your program, but it needs to be something to which you have been exposed because it is your sport. If you're not going to do that, then I think there's way less of a case for anybody really needing to do that. If you just want to do that RPE audit thing, that's fine. Can you live a full, complete, and productive training life without ever going to failure or even training at a lower RPE than you think you are in, in, uh, you know, in, in, in true terms. Yes, that's fine. Um, I think that uh, a, a big consideration is, is what are you training for? The idea that, um, you know, you have to get to that near failure or failure point for a set to be useful or productive, which would be a position that <laughs> we used to be familiar with. I think that that's just not something that can be supported by the existing evidence here. Um, if it were, then all of the uh, velocity loss data would point squarely in the other direction. People who go closer to failure, who grind harder, would consistently get better strength outcomes, which is not the case. Um, and in my own training, I mean, you were mentioning like 
staying 10 reps shy of failure or something like that. I think about what would be, a, 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 it would not be unusual for me to do a whole bunch of back off sets of three or something at like 70% of my one rep max, which is like pretty much triples at like 10 reps, uh, 10 to 15 rep max or something like that. And I'm moving them relatively quickly and doing a bunch of sets. That would not be an unusual, you know, type of a training setup for a, for a given lift for me or something like that. So, yeah. Uh, sidebar kind of related. People ask all the time, hey, when should a person do single rep efforts in training? When should people train singles? And my response to that is, Never, if they don't want to, and they're not a powerlifter. So if you are a powerlifter, I don't care if you want to or not, like you, you're going to have to do it. It's practicing the sport. Otherwise, the next concern is like, do you want to do that in training? If so, like we can work that in. And if you haven't checked either of those boxes, I would almost never program that because I don't see a unique benefit from a health standpoint. Um, and so I probably just wouldn't do it. You, you would just do fives. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Well, well, so, so then some people might say, well, maximal strength development is not going to, you know, get, you know, developed as efficiently as if you did singles. And I was like, well, I could still do heavy sets of three, for example, or twos, fours. And yeah, it's not going to be as good as for maximal strength development in the setting of a one rep effort, but it's good enough. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah it's fine. Totally fine. Fair, fair <laughs> enough. All right. Next question. Is TRT, testosterone replacement therapy, morally considered cheating in sport if not if someone's not hypogonadal, so having low testosterone, I guess I got to start this off here. And I will respond that the answer is no, that it is not considered cheating unless it is expli explicitly forbidden in the set of rules that everybody has agreed to play by. And so when I'm thinking about sports, sports organization bodies and how they've constructed their rules, I can really only think of less than a handful of organizations who do not allow therapeutic use exemptions for individuals with hypogonadism uh, to use testosterone replacement therapy. And so this, this question asks, is it considered cheating if the person's not hypogonadal? And if someone's using TRT, I don't have to invoke morals here because it's just against the rules. So like, yeah. it's just kind of the is, definition of cheating. <laughs> it's literally the definition of cheating. If everybody agrees upon a set of rules that you choose to engage in in a sport, then yeah, it is in fact, cheating. Now, the question really would be if somebody is hypogonadal and is participating in a sport uh, that does not allow TUE, a therapeutic use exemption for use of TRT, is that still cheating if they, in fact, use TRT? And I think you have to answer yes, because it's still just against the rules. The question then becomes, well, should it be against the rules? And that's a whole other situation. So in any case, my answer to this is that I don't have to invoke any sort of moral you know, arguments here at all. Effectively, if it's against the rules, it is cheating by definition. And if there's no rule to it, it's not cheating. You don't have to use any sort of, you know, difference in values or belief systems to like come to that conclusion. Yeah, this seems like a pretty concrete thing of like, is it against the rules or not? <laughs> and that determines your answer. So, so that's a tough one to argue against. The, the, the way that I'm uh, actually going to come at this instead is kind of going to be similar to the last great debates episode we had when it came to the testosterone question if you are not hypogonadal it's not trt by definition <laughs> it's not testosterone replacement if you are not hypogonadal you're just using testosterone and you know whether you want to label that as you know steroid abuse or use or whatever again all that implies some sort of moral judgment on it which i don't care for it really just depends on what are the collective rules of the sport so ultimately from that standpoint i'm going to agree with you um 
this is a very concrete, not really debatable question. Is it, is it against the, the, the agreed upon rules or not? But outside of that, if you're not hypogonadal, you're not on TRD. Okay, so then we'll make a debatable one. In sports that do not allow for the use of a therapeutic use exemption, that's basically a doctor's note saying, hey, this person does have this diagnosis. Here's what they're prescribed. And most sporting organizations allow for TRT to be involved there. If somebody is hypogonadal, they'll allow for people to use testosterone replacement therapy to get their levels back up to normal in sport as long as you have filed all this stuff. So is it a good policy for a sport to effectively ban TUEs for testosterone replacement therapy? Yes or no? I, man, that's a tough one. I do not think it would be a good policy to blanket ban. I can already envision some of the concerns that would be put forth um, uh, by folks who are not on testosterone, knowing that one of their, you know, competitors may be on testosterone, even if it is a uh, uh, testosterone replacement for clinical hypogonadism. And that's just because TRT, even for hypogonadism, is like a messy thing. And and what I mean by that is that the the dosing and the levels that you aim to achieve and all that stuff is super messy. It's a very wide range. And so it's very difficult to it's very difficult to say that I have confidently gotten you back to just a eugonadal normal testosterone state and not like a hair above it. Um, it is uh, oftentimes just because there are significant swings, especially with injection, uh, uh, you know, TRT, your levels are going to spike quite a bit after the injection, gradually trail off until your next dose. And so it's likely for a lot of these folks that for a period of time after their dose that they are super physiologic for them and then it gradually trails down and then like on average they're staying more or less uh where they where they ought to be so i think it's a it's a hairy it's a hairy thing um to try to give a clear-cut answer to i don't think it would be a good policy to outright ban it but uh envision i envision there being pushback <laughs> yeah i can imagine that there's pushback i would argue that it is a bad policy to have in place uh, and, and there's just just there's an assumption that if or a fear rather that if you allow TUEs for TRT for testosterone replacement therapy, you're going to have widespread abuse of testosterone. Now, I think with other various treatments that alter hormone levels that are thought to be predictive of performance, things like testosterone, uh, for example, um, we don't really have good data showing that, hey, if you, increases, if you increase somebody's testosterone level to this level within the normal range, they have a substantial performance benefit. A significant performance benefit. And so even if you had this sort of, I don't know, we'll call it abuse of the TUE system and a bunch of people who weren't hypogonadal were placed on TRT, you'd have documentation of their dosing. You'd also have documentation of their blood levels of testosterone, and you would just set cutoffs. Be like, hey, this is as high as you can go. And then you could collect that data and then make a policy that's actually evidence-based rather than opinion-based. And I think that would be a better way to do it rather than just say, like the USAPL does, hey, if you're, you, if you're hypogonadal, you can't use uh, testosterone replacement therapy. Go compete somewhere else. And I'm like, I don't think that that's a really equitable yeah, policy. Don't love that. <laughs> okay. Last two questions here. Ooh, Austin, this is going to be a good one. Who's healthier, a competitive powerlifter or a marathoner? Hmm. Yeah, this is a pretty tough one. Um, I, am, I am going to maybe take a take a surprising position here and, and go with the marathoner, I think. Um, and <laughs> you know, it's going to, it would pain both of us to have to, to have to do this. But, um, I think that, uh, the reason I'm saying that is that there's, there's this, um, concept of like, what are the, what are the constraints that are uh, in place because of the task that somebody is pursuing? And so I think that the constraints effectively to train to be a marathoner 
are much more uh, favorable or in line with um, multiple favorable health outcomes compared with the constraints in competitive powerlifting. And that's basically because in competitive powerlifting, there there really aren't any <laughs> there aren't any constraints. So so what I mean by that is that you can, if you wanted to be the the absolute strongest competitive powerlifter you could possibly be, you would gain as much weight as you possibly could. You would do as little other, <laughs> you know, uh, kind of quote unquote off target activity compared with training and practicing for your sport. Um, and so you could envision being super super strong, um, having you know morbid obesity. Um, or class class three obesity, I suppose we should call it, and then um, and you could be very strong, very competitive uh, in in the in the powerlifting world. So there are effectively no constraints um, from from that perspective. Of course, the you know what I envision my my colleague will comment on is the benefits of uh, strength and muscle mass as those relate to a variety of health outcomes, uh, averting sarcopenia, things like that, um, uh, uh, bone, bone density, various other aspects that are all admittedly important, uh, but can come with some untoward effects when they are paired with gaining substantial body fat um, and not uh, meeting or exceeding, you know, uh, conditioning guidelines. Whereas for the marathoner, in order to be able to, you know, generally be successful at, at as successful at marathoning as the prior case of a competitive powerlifter, I think the constraints on that are going to select much more for both fa very favorable body composition and very favorable um, uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, it will not develop the same degree of uh, strength, uh, absolute strength or muscle mass. Although I think that even in more advanced ages, if I had anybody who was able to complete a marathon um, by virtue of having continued to participate in that task, then they will probably have at least a, a baseline minimum level of strength um, to, uh, to have reasonably good health outcomes, to not be um, to not end up in a nursing home, unable to take care of themselves, unable to stand up out of a chair, et cetera. So I think that if I had to compare the trade-offs, um, the relatively less strength and muscle mass development in the marathoner, um, while still having a, some amount of it, um, with very high cardiorespiratory fitness being likely and potentially uh, and likely a favorable body composition, if I had to tilt, that would tilt in that direction versus a highly, a similarly highly competitive uh, powerlifter who may, uh, who has fewer constraints on their ability to uh, gain substantial amounts of body fat, risk um, those negative health effects, um, hypertension, sleep apnea, cardio cardiovascular risk, um, and not achieve similar levels of cardiorespiratory fitness. Yeah, yeah, your point's well made, and and I think there's there's multiple layers to this, particularly if you uh, make, you know, maintain the argument that. They have to be the similar level of competitiveness. So like an elite level powerlifter yeah. versus an elite yeah. level marathoner. I think where I will be forced to come at this from is that in general, the elite competitive powerlifter is going to be much younger than the elite competitive marathoner. <laughs> in, in general, people do not compete in powerlifting for their entire life. And so I look at it as the exposure to potentially less health promoting practices and body composition and levels of cardiorespiratory fitness will be a much shorter period of time. And whereas the marathoner, I agree, is likely to have ample amounts of muscle mass, muscle strength to not be a risk of sarcopenia, for example, but due to the advanced age or potential advanced age, you know, the risk of osteoporosis starts coming up, uh, for example, but I'm not, there's no real risk of this, like, extreme exercise. I'm not really concerned about that. I'm more just, you know, the people who self-select in these two different sports, it's like the sport selected them. They didn't select the sport, so to speak. So you're getting just two different types of people. Um, but if I had to argue in favor of the competitive powerlifter being healthier, it's just due to a reduced exposure overall to maybe unhealthy practices. Uh, 
I guess I have to argue against myself within my own rebuttal <laughs> because I think the the risk of um, pressures to use uh, performance enhancing drugs in powerlifting is much much higher than uh, marathoning, for example. And the particular agents that are used in competitive powerlifting tend to be uh, more harmful than those that are used in endurance sports. Although that's not always the case. So I think if I had to sum it all together, that I mostly agree with you outside of maybe <laughs> the exposure risk. I see my times. <laughs> yes, yeah, fair enough. All right, last question. I will start with this one. Is high cholesterol unhealthy? And uh, I'm going to take the opposite approach to allow you to opine about why these comments I'm about to make are unsubstantiated and ill-advised. <laughs> okay. So I will say that high levels of cholesterol, and I'll specify this as the atherogenic fraction of lipoprotein, so LDL, triglycerides, for example, that having high levels of these are not necessarily unhealthy because, look, there's plenty of people who have elevated LDL levels and elevated triglycerides who don't have major adverse cardiac events, things like heart attacks, stroke, or whatever. And folks who are having, you know, heart attacks and whatever, they can have low levels of LDL and triglycerides. And honestly, when you look at studies, even up to five years uh, in length, for example, lowering LDL, lowering triglycerides don't seem to make a big difference in mortality. People don't die uh, any less if they're on medications or other interventions that would lower their atherogenic uh, cholesterol. So I don't really see what the big deal is here. I think doctors are <laughs> really just in the pocket of big pharma and they're just trying to get everybody on a statin and they're incapable of actually thinking outside the box. You just learn what's in the box and you regurgitate that at will. You know, I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's a bunch of nonsense. Um, I, I will say that, you know, just the phrasing of this question, is it unhealthy, I think is, is not necessarily reflective of how we would view this. I think that it is something that confers a degree of risk. And risk is by nature probabilistic. So that's like nerd speak for saying that nothing is a guarantee that if you have this, it's going to kill you. If you don't, it's not. It's just a probability. And probabilities are going to be distributed across populations. And this is the same, you know, the same reason that, you know, somebody who's listening right now, they have a grandparent or a great grandparent who smoked their entire life and they never developed lung cancer or COPD or cardiovascular disease or something like that because it's probabilistic. They, you know, there are things that um, just either by sheer chance or maybe they had certain aspects of their biology that we don't necessarily recognize, understand, or appreciate yet that made them relatively resistant to the negative effects of this. And there are for sure similar aspects when it relates to high blood uh, uh, cholesterol, high blood lipoprotein levels. There are people who have uh, low levels of these things who are going to develop cardiovascular disease, likely through other mechanisms, um, although at least in part contributed by high blood cholesterol, because it has to be present for the development of what we, you know, atherosclerosis. There are going to be people who have high blood levels who don't develop it, um, whether through just chance, luck, or certain aspects of their biology that render them relatively resistant. And those aspects of their biology at this point are not super, super well understood. Once we do have a good understanding of those, maybe we can replicate them, maybe we can generalize them, maybe we can gene edit people and make them more resistant um, to the development of the leading cause of death worldwide. That's all great. But at the moment, sh lacking that understanding, the way we view this is as a probabilistic risk factor. And so if you want to reduce your risk of developing this highly, co very common, very prevalent, very morbid condition, then um, I would say that the overall body of evidence would point towards maintain it, achieving and maintaining lower blood levels of this earlier in life for a longer duration of time being 
uh, tending to generate better outcomes compared with letting uh, people have higher levels um, for longer periods of their life. There is one, you know, you, you cited, I don't know that you actually cited, you just kind of said that when there are studies looking at people for five years and you lower, there's not significant outcomes. That's just actually false. There, there are numerous randomized trials of uh, therapeutic interventions to lower blood cholesterol levels um, using various different agents. For example, the, the, the trials coming from PCSK9 inhibitors that, that uh, showed reductions in events in much less than that, just on the order of like 2.3 years or so, something like that. Um, similar uh, data with, uh, with statin use and, and other agents on uh, shorter timeframes than that, assuming that you have a large enough population in your study to, to identify it. Uh, and then the other aspect is that uh, the earlier you intervene in people and sustain that intervention for longer, you tend to uh, uh, lower that that risk lowering tends to magnify over time. In other words, this is why when you look at trials where interventions are performed to lower these blood levels when somebody's 80 or 85 years old, you don't see as great of an effect. Depending on how much you lower it, you can still actually see benefits even in that age group. However, those benefits pale in comparison to what you would see if you achieved that lowering much earlier in life. The extreme version of this being people who are born with genetic variants that give them low blood cholesterol levels from birth who have upwards of a 90% lifetime reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. And again, this is the most uh, common cause of death worldwide. So I think that you know, I don't necessarily just say it is a healthy or unhealthy and high cholesterol doesn't act. It, it, it can mean a whole lot of different things depending on which lab parameters you're looking at. But if you're looking at the most common ones that tend to generate the most concern, I view it as something that confers risk. Um, broadly speaking, there's a lot of contextual factors that I take into account when I'm talking with somebody. I just had an appointment yesterday with somebody whose levels were like pretty modestly elevated and he was very concerned. And so I said, well, my level of concern is going to scale with other things, including do you have a strong family history of heart disease? Uh, do you have high blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? Do you have obesity? Do you have other things that would kind of all you know, mix in this pot to generate unaccept such unacceptably high risk that I'd be compelled to treat you aggressively right now? Or do you have none of those things? There's no family history. There's no high blood. There's nothing else. And these very modestly elevated levels, maybe we can give a shot of some dietary substitutions, crank up some dietary fiber, adjust some of our uh, fat sources in our, in our foods, get some, you know, some fatty fish, get some nuts, get some fiber from oats and berries and things like that, and see if we can make some progress. Um, and if not, then we can readdress this conversation. We can talk about other ways to assess your risk and how aggressive we want to treat it. But I think that blowing all this off, hopefully that answer uh, illustrates that I'm not uh, that I'm not just brainlessly regurgitating uh, uh, statin prescriptions to anybody whose level exceeds the upper limit of quote unquote normal. There's a lot of considerations that go into this, um, as well as interpreting the, the overall body of, of research on this and recognizing that all of this risk is probabilistic. I'm still recommending all my pa patients who smoke quit smoking, even though there's probably a decent chunk of them who they could keep smoking if they wanted to, and they probably wouldn't develop lung cancer. But if I were them, I would not chance it. And that's the basis on which I give my advice to people. That sounds like uh, you're a big pharma shill and uh, <laughs> just regurgitating. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I expected you would say. So, no, I actually think this is super important to, to view how Dr. Baraki actually looks at um, elevated cholesterol, elevated lipoproteins um, in the context of the entire patient. And when we're discussing things like lipid lowering therapy, uh, you know, having people being screened for high cholesterol and, and things of that nature, that it's not just a, you know, lab variable or analyte that we're trying to, you know, optimize or buff to make look good. It's we're trying to reduce the risk based on, you know, multiple different factors. And this is just one particular risk factor. And I cannot take seriously anybody 
who does not view the atherogenic component of lipoproteins in the blood as a significant risk factor for heart disease. There's just overwhelming amounts of data on this showing that relationship. Yeah. Although if I encounter somebody like that who feels that way, who is resistant to, you know, um, other ways of looking at this and who feels confident that they are fine and they don't want to treat whatever risk factor they may have, then that's fine too. Yeah, Yeah. that's fine. I don't get, I don't get terribly torn up about it once we've had an adequate conversation about it. Similar if you said that, you know, you come in, you have raging high blood pressure and you're like, I don't believe blood pressure is a thing. Uh, Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. It's not, (laughs) it's not your duty to convince somebody of something that they cannot be convinced of. So it's just, you're giving your expert opinion as a consultant in this relationship and, you know, as adults that are autonomous. So we think, uh, you know, <laughs> they can do what they want with that information. It's kind of yeah, yeah, how exactly. it should go. Yep. All right. That's a wrap on episode 261. Great debates in fitness and health. Part two. Uh, shout out to Austin Baraki for joining me on the podcast. And thank you everyone for listening. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.